Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Silas, associate pastor here, and it is my joy to be worshiping together as we continue our series exploring parables through the book of Luke. So parables, we started with a parable in the Old Testament just to give us the form, to recognize like parables themselves aren't just Jesus's thing, but they are a form that exists all through scripture. But specifically for us, this series, we're going to look at parables in the book of Luke. And, you know, parables, they're designed to be inverted. You know, as a form, they want us to play with them. They want us to handle them. Because as we take each different parable, like the inversions themselves, they invite us to discover the revelation about God, ourselves, and the world. And this is why I love preaching these well-known stories, these parables. Because above all else, the parables of Scripture, they're aimed to help us discover God in the multifaceted ways that each of these stories can speak to us from different perspectives. And so all series, we've approached parables, this form of communicating. We, we've approached them through the lens of invitation. Parables invite us to something. They also invite us to someone. And so, who do each of these stories invite us to meet? As we've seen in previous weeks, Amy Jill Levine, she's again a Jewish scholar from Vanderbilt, she is right on when she says, as we read parables today, might we think less about what they mean, what's the one meaning, and think more about what they can do, what they form within us, what they form us towards. May we think more about what they form us into and then what they form within us. If you would, join me for a word of prayer as we come to the word and then we'll continue on. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We are grateful for this time in our week to pause, to hear from you. And may you, by the power of your spirit, open us up to receive your word May this spoken word be faithful to your written word, and may it lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit, and everyone said, amen. In 1630, the famous Dutch artist Rembrandt painted this scene. 1630, he painted this scene. Take a look at it. Take it in. What is it portraying? What does it evoke? I heard it over here, right? It's a striking image. It's housed in London right now in the, um, the Wallace Collection. And the painting is entitled The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. Throughout his life, Rembrandt would come back to this painting over and over from Luke 10. And for many of us, whether we grew up in church or not, this story about the Good Samaritan. Like, we have some cursory familiarity with it, at least in some ways. Like, in many states, we have things like Good Samaritan laws. We have one in Washington state. It was revamped, I think, last year. And so we have these laws, right, called Good Samaritan laws. They're things that, on one hand, they protect us. They, uh, they alleviate uh, legal liability, and they protect those who are acting in goodwill towards someone else. 
They're doing good things. You're protected legally under good Samaritan laws. And so on one level, this is a story that we read in a way that impacts our actions. It inspires us in some ways to be like the good Samaritan, do good things. Of course, like this is a good lesson to glean from the text. Be a good Samaritan to people in need. Most of the time, this is where we tend to land the plane on this story. And because of this, because of our familiarity, sometimes we need other handles that enliven the story for us in new ways. So this is where art comes in. This is where art can help us. Linda Naiman, a creative who works in the field of organizational aesthetics, she makes a keen observation when she says, art provides an opportunity for kaleidoscopic thinking. Each time we shift the lens of our perceptions, we gain new perspectives and new opportunities. Today, may that happen among us. May we gain new perspective and recognize opportunities that God is enlightening within us. Through art, may we see how our entry points into the story, they might be enhanced as we look at this image and the images from Rembrandt that transmit this story to us. If you would, join me as we read our passage. Our passage is from Luke 10, verses 25 through 37, and we're going to be reading from the Lexham English Bible, the Lexham, um, the Lexham English Bible translation, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up, and, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, this is Jesus, he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, that's the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came up to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. If we could get that first Rembrandt picture back up, Bill. As we read our passage this morning, where does Rembrandt's painting 
Where does it show up in the timeline of our story? Can you catch it? Like within the scope of the text, the story we just read, what is this painting depicting? It's the end. They're starting at the end. I love this image from Rembrandt because of the way that the image plays with light and darkness. Like the image, it highlights the moment that the helper, the Samaritan in our story, brings the hurt man to the end. But notice, like, the man is in the shadows. His back is turned. We don't see his face. It's dark. In contrast to this, notice what is emphasized in the lighter segment of the image. In contrast to the cloaked Samaritan, the image highlights the one who has been victimized and placed, and he's placed front and center. He's placed in a way that kind of provocatively asks us, do you see me? Do you see me? In our traditional readings of this passage, we oftentimes read from a perspective that places us in the shoes of the Samaritan. Now, if the lesson of the story is to do good things, which is a good lesson, well, it makes sense that we place ourselves in that perspective. We want to be the one who's doing. Again, this is not an incorrect reading of the text. It's just that if this is the only way we ever let this text read us, we miss the different facets that God's trying to reveal to us. This image serves us by being an invitation to humanization. It brings the beaten man to us, and it draws us into his experience. Think back to the beginning of our passage. Verse 25, we see that an expert in the law comes to Jesus with a question about how he might inherit eternal life. So he asks this question, and Jesus responds by sending the ball back into his court. Verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And not just that you know the law, but how do you read this thing? What do you do with these words? This leads the man to give the correct answer. His response, which incorporates a portion of Torah known as the Shema, it's a prayer, uh, it's spoken three times a day by many Jews in our day and age right now. So they'll do it in the morning, they'll do it in the evening, they'll do it before they go to bed. In his context, they probably did it twice a day, minimum, every day of his life. So he's, by all accounts, giving the correct answer. He's devout, right? We, we shouldn't overlook or downplay him. Like, he is living into his formation. He knows his scriptures, but he has devoted himself, right, to being able to give the right answers, to correct, to express his faith in the correct ways, in the right ways. The man is deeply religious. And when we take this detail seriously, this is where the parable inverts a little bit on the traditional readings that we normally have for this parable. Can you see how just this one idea that you're talking, Jesus is telling this parable to someone who knows the law, who is devout. Can you see how this starts making all the difference in the world? 
If not, don't worry, we have other images to go through that will help us. But we're going to turn the story a little bit more and allow things to come into focus. This next image can help us gain understanding. This next image is, again, from Rembrandt in 1638. So eight years later, he's still thinking about this story. And as you look at it, it might seem like a regular landscape painting. And yet, do you know what this painting is called? Landscape with the Good Samaritan. So pretty straightforward. It's a landscape, has a Good Samaritan. Thank you, Rembrandt. That's lovely. The first image you know, that we looked at, it challenged us by pressing on who we see ourselves as within the text. Right? Who do we see ourselves as within the text? This image illustrates a couple details in the text that are easy to miss when we just look at the words. But let's look at verse 30 to 33 again. Jesus' parable begins with a man who, notice this, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on the route, he gets attacked, victimized, left for dead on the side of the road. And then the story tells us about a priest who is, which way he's going. He's going down that same road. And when he saw the man, he passes on the other side. Same story for the Levite. Where is he coming from? He's at Jerusalem. He's coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he sees the man, he passes the victim of tragedy by crossing to the other side. But now catch this. Don't miss the subtlety of Jesus here. But a certain man who was traveling came up to the man. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he came up and bandaged his wounds. Then after treating the man, he takes him to an inn on his own animal, i.e. like he's walking now, right? He was on an animal, he puts the man on the animal, he walks and leads now. And he takes the victim to an inn. Do you see it? Like, can you visualize the trajectory, the direction that is present in the story? Again, remember who Jesus is talking to. His main audience is an expert in the law. Part of the religious elite who is tasked for caring for all Israel. And in the story... What direction is the man, the priest, and the Levite? What, what direction are they traveling in? They're coming down. They are going down. The imagery, same place, same starting place, same home. Jesus tells a story where the leaders of the temple are walking away from Jerusalem. They're leaving the holy city. Meanwhile, the Samaritan, the person in the story who's assumed to be far from God, mainly because they worship at a different mountain, they worship at a different holy site than the Israelites, that guy, meanwhile, the Samaritan, he comes up. He's described as ascending, coming up to the man, coming up to the place. And eventually, he takes the man to the end. Like, there are layers to the scandal of Jesus' words here. The image he is painting has striking words. In no uncertain terms, Jesus reverses expectations for who is holy and who is profane in his parable. In saying that the priest and the Levite are walking away from the holy city, 
While the one who's supposed to be far away from the city is coming up to it, Jesus is offering a critique of the version of faith that the lawyer holds. Don't forget, this whole parable is offered in response to the lawyer's question, and who is my neighbor? And that question's offered in a posture of self-justification. Think this detail in Rembrandt's landscape. It captures something for us. I don't know if you can see it too clearly, but you see the, how, the horse, the man? They're headed this direction. Every other person in this image is headed in the opposite direction. When we zoom out, do you also see how Rembrandt, again, he's playing with light and darkness. He's playing with the imagery again. He's playing with the idea that everyone is traveling from the light on the left on the winding road towards the darkness, except for the Samaritan and the man who are traveling from the darkness towards the light. We love to preach this passage in a way that inspires us to do good things. Be like the Good Samaritan. Take care of people when they're in need. But when we take into account who Jesus is talking to, the expectations that the Jewish expert in the law would have held when it comes to Israel's and Samaritans, what the story really asks us to meditate on is this key question. What happens to our categories of faith when my enemy treats me better than my own faith family does? What happens to my categories of faith when my enemy treats me better than my own family does? In telling this parable to the lawyer, Jesus is trying to tell him something profound. He's trying to tell him this. Faith is not fulfilled in the application of the law, in the application of principles. That's not what faith is. Faith is fulfilled in our relationships with people. Life with God is not based in transaction. Life of God is rooted in relation. Following God isn't about dogmatic ideology. It's about generous orthodoxy. Faith, again, is fulfilled in our relationships with people. It's not an application of principle. Because here's the thing, right? He can apply the principle well. Jesus even says, you've answered correctly. That's right. But correctness and faithfulness are different things. I can be right about something and hold it in a way that's deeply unfaithful, but I'm still right. This is what the story is bringing up for us. It's this tension. This is the crux of our story. This is how the parable, it reads us. What happens to my categories of faith when my enemy treats me better than my own family does? From the perspective of the person who has been left for dead, when the people who are supposed to, you know, hate me, treat 
me better than my faith tribe? What does that do to our faith? And how, how does it help us reimagine relationships in Christ and with Christ? This is what Jesus gets to at the end of the parable. The who's in and who's out view of faith that the lawyer has gets blown up by this story. Neighbor is reimagined. And Christ exhorts the man to go and do likewise. Go and show mercy. It's striking that the first question the man asks is a question about seizing eternal life. What can I do to inherit eternal life? There's a fundamental thing present in that view that challenges us as people in the world. It's a temptation we might have, seizing eternal life, inheriting it. What it does is it treats eternal life as an object that we grasp in the future. The thing is, what Jesus says to him to do is go and do likewise. Something that's present, something that's active, something that's right now. Because here's the, here's the thrust of it. Eternal life isn't an object we grasp in the future. It's something we live now. It's something we participate with God in making now. Through this short story, the lawyer's world is turned upside down but it's actually placed right side up. He's able to see in ways that challenge and also correct his vision. And guess what, friends? Jesus wants to do the exact same thing with us. He wants to help us see right side up. At the end of the parable, again, verse 36, Jesus asks the expert, which of these three do you suppose became a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Notice the progressive language Jesus uses. Right? Not has become, but became. Is in the process of. Not started out as a neighbor, but became a neighbor. This is a dynamic, process-rooted question. Pulling inspiration from this question and the parable, how might we prove to be neighbors to people who have been bypassed by religion? Who have been walked past by religion? Doesn't mean you have to start as a neighbor, but how might we become neighbors? Active, dynamic, changing, reflective, breaking from the models necessarily that have served us well, but challenges us in ways that say, where is Jesus? And what is Jesus calling us towards? We can spiritualize this story and image. And in a way, it sometimes when we even take the story and flip it like we have, it we, we lose the grittiness of it, the earthiness of it. We, we miss the way that it actually talks to us directly in our everyday life. 
Which is why I love this last image. Bill, could we get that last one from Rembrandt Hub? This is an etching of the Good Samaritan that he does three years after that first image we saw. It's very similar if you look at it, but there's a slight addition to it. Let's zoom into that. Well, here, yeah, here's the first one, right? So compared to the first one, very similar. But notice, let's zoom in again. What's present in this etching three years after? There's a dog. And what's the dog doing? You can say it. I mean, it's everyday life, right? This is why I love this image. Because there's a dog doing the business, right? The thing about this is, when we look at this parable, we can, again, flip it, let it read us, hit us with the weight. But sometimes we need the levity that just says, man, life gets messy, stuff happens, right? This image invites us to recognize that thread too. It helps us see this story in a way that Good Samaritan, we want to do good things. We also want to recognize that it's a story about reading our lives differently. It blows up our categories. It flips who is in, who's out. It helps us reimagine our faith and it reminds us in pretty funny ways that even when I am with my kid and he's having a tantrum. When I am in the neighborhood and someone, or there's an animal eating my strawberry plant. This is a personal experience. We have this plant that just like dies. We have rabbits and squirrels that eat it up. We haven't had any fruit for three years. Um, doesn't matter, right? Like there's the mundane elements of life that happen. And still, can we be a neighbor? Can we allow God to surprise us? I think this is, in that vein, a question that is for all of us. Can we receive goodness from unexpected people? From unexpected places? People we'd never expect goodness from. Like, is there room in our lives to be surprised by God? in the way that we've read this parable, I hope there have been some surprising things. Some in the more serious vein, others in a vein that just helps us take stock, take perspective. But this parable reads us in so many different ways, and we've read it and twisted it. How does it land on you? In the questions we've asked, in the angles we've looked at, Remember, every inversion of a parable is an invitation to transformation. The goals of the parables is transformation from information that's through the story, through the narration. And so will you be transformed today? How is God pulling on your heart, transforming you towards wholeness? We're going to pause with that question. We're going to end with that question. And then receive this prayer as we pause and reflect together. <laughs> together.
as we pray. I know that in this room there are many ways that we are experiencing life. And in those many experiences, as you receive the gift of story and God's story, and the way that God is working, and perhaps one of the things that even stands as an application piece from this sermon is the recognition that no story has a fixed one ending or uh, one meaning. And as we allow God to surprise us in the ways that a story can twist, as we can allow God to surprise us in the ways that we find ourselves, different positions within a story, receive this prayer that opens us to the fullness of God. Again, God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. You said it three times this morning already, and yet we say it again. Because it's in our gratitude that we recognize you are God, and there are things beyond our understanding that we feel. And still, we hear your call to be a good neighbor. Not in the Fred Rogers kind of way, but in the, the way that invites us to recognize this in deep ways. In ways that resonate with our vocation, with our family, with our community, with the way we hold religion. We pray, Lord, you would be near to us as we draw near to you this week. Would you speak to us and surprise us with your goodness? Make us good neighbors. May we receive your goodness. And may we transmit the fullness of your glory in creation around us. Help us to do this well. And we pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Everyone said, amen.